0: Hi, it's Sunday afternoon. I've been working all day. Speech, I have to give somewhere. Lecture. I'm frankly bugged out. So I'm going to try to do some uh, relief by doing the first podcast for this week. Knocking that off. Giving me a little bit of respite. Um, Today's podcast is being sponsored anonymously in honor of. The sponsor is Dear Friends, which is Shimon and Chevy Marciano. And I'll probably give it away, but I respect everyone's uh, uh, desire for anonymity. Roosevelt used to say that the perfect aide has to have a passion for anonymity. Uh, And uh, once again, we thank all of our sponsors. And I'll tell you something interesting. I hope. I was thinking who to talk about today. And I looked through the names that were sent to me online, these kinds of things. You know what they have, who's the art site it is. I don't know, nothing clicked. Nothing clicked. And a couple of people just sent me, what shall I say, spontaneously without me asking them, why don't you do this person, why don't you do that person? But I don't need anybody's suggestions. Anyway, it was just for the heck of it, I opened, I would save for three volumes, Malice H. I think it's from the father of the I believe. And he has all these yard sites and so forth. Usually obscure figures. Uh, that were well known in Hungary or Galicia or places like that. Most people never heard of them. And that's who I picked up today. So I'll talk about somebody most of you probably never heard of. And we don't know that much about them. But we know some. And it's very interesting. And I'm talking about Moshe Ostra. From Brody. That's not a household name. From the era of 18th century, who was uh, the leader of prominent, very prominent, what they call the Brody, Brody Kloys. I've spoken about it, I'm sure, on previous occasions. But now I'd like to come at it in a little more comprehensive fashion. So we have a person living in the 1700s in Poland. Well, the kingdom of Poland. The, today it's Ukraine. And Brody. And uh, we're talking about the era just before the modern period. If he'd lived, I would guess, I mean, I, I know he died in 1785, so I would, the way I figure about 1710. So he, he's a contemporary of the Baal from the Magan and all that. But he was a misnugget Well, where am I wrong? That's goof what I want to talk about. We're dealing with the pre-modern Europe just before modernity hit. We're dealing with the 18th century. We're dealing with Eastern Galicia, which today is really Ukraine, which means we're dealing with an area which was economically rich. The owners are these big Polish landlords, the population are Ukrainian and Jews. The Jews are like the middlemen. And this is a classic example of the Polish nobles who use the Jews for economic purposes, uh to the benefit of both parties. Now, our hero, as I say before. Followers from Zamosh. I mean, these are all towns in the same general region Eastern Poland, Eastern uh, Galicia. Now, this is the old school. What do I mean? Think about it for a second. Today, you and I are living in the uh, 21st century. We're now in January 2021, so we're starting the third decade of the 21st century. My mind. And uh, in our lifetimes, there is more or less evolved kind of a from education system. <laughs> Nobody planned it to evolve. So girls, you have like the Yako system, that kind of thing. <laughs> Twelve grades, a seminary, a this, this, that, and the other. For the boys, a little more variation, but roughly speaking, the high school is supposed to be preparation for Shibu Gidol. Shibu you last typically four or five years, I guess. You know, something like that. By that time they figured a guy would get married, roughly speaking. And for post yeshiva is a kolal. The kolil ends up assuming many forms. And this is something that literally has evolved in our lifetimes. If you went back a hundred years ago, there weren't any kolils, or very, very few, let's put it that way. Right? Wasn't few. A hundred years ago, for most people. You went to yeshiva for so and so many years, eventually got married. After a little while, you either tried to find a job in, in the in the Jewish world, you're learning or rabbi or something like that, or you went out and did something else. What else could you do? Nobody, it was, at that time, there's no welfare state, there's no unemployment, there's no social security, you know, there's no safety net. If you don't eat, you starve. And in that world, that's how it was for centuries, centuries and centuries. Uh, Yeshivas existed in one form or another, but usually they were for younger people, teenagers. (laughs) Once you get to the late teens, so where is it going? You know, where is it going? And usually most people, after learning so and so many years, got married. If it's the old school, like uh, years ago, the Talmudic system is, you want a boy to get married as young as possible. For your hurrying purposes. That's the old school and uh so people got married late teens, let's put middle teens, late teens, generally speaking. And then uh the guy went off and did something. Right? There was an elite of good learners, and most of them I won't say most of them, how would we know? But from that group, some would learn up a couple more years, things like that. And then some would go into the rabbit. Hole. Well, that's very hard actually. The Rabbonis was like a monopoly. You know, a dozen families controlled all the positions from two ends. They supplied most of the rabbis, and they were related to, you know, the the, the, the richie rich people that owned the towns. Especially in the period of our hero, Moshe Ostr. Uster, by the way, is named a little town of Ukraine. I mean, you know, don't freak out of it. oster There's an Ostr river, you know, if it matters. As a matter of fact, Ustra Oster is a little town on the confluence of two rivers. And when you're talking about Eastern Europe with the bad roads, wherever we had rivers, especially two rivers come together like a Pittsburgh, you know, comes the center of commerce. And the center of commerce, that's where Jews go. So our hero grew up in that environment. Poland was a funny place for Jews. It could be good. It could be bad. If you had money, it was good. If you were connected to people, that had money, it was good. If he didn't, it wasn't so good. Brody, I'm sure I've said this before, was like the classic town where this is reflected. It was a boom town based on Jewish commercial enterprise, based on the fact that the guy who owned the whole Medina, including the city, was Prince Poniatowski. And um, he was a big uh, Polish nobleman with a giant palace and all that stuff. He really was. There's a very famous story, I'm sure I've said it before, that the town burned down in 1744, and everybody was wiped out economically, and mainly, you're talking about Jewish businessmen, but the prince called the businessmen into his palace, and he opened the safe and gave each guy what you and I would today would call $100,000. Uh, and $100,000 by the standards of 50 years ago, when it was money. And, uh, armed with this cash, uh, these merchants went and they, uh, traveled to Germany, not too far away, went to the great fairs that existed once upon a time. And because they had cash, they bought up a belt of merchandise and shipped it back to Brody and started the commerce going, as we would say today, they spark plug the economy. Next thing you know, it's like Donald Trump, you know, the, the economy went up, the unemployment went down, uh, construction boom took place as houses were rebuilt and wharves and warehouses and all that kind of stuff. And within a couple of years, the town was twice what had been before and Prince Poniatowski was skimming off the top to taxes twice what he had before. All of it which means that he was not a lover of Jews, but he was an intelligent god. As they write in the books, he was an intelligent steward of his own economic interests. Why not? And Jews benefited from that. Now... In the 16th and 1700s, in the pre modern times, 15, 16, 1700s, uh, what do you call it? The, listen closely, the rich were still from. It was the old school. And therefore, if you're rich and you're from, like being a successful merchant, how do you show off your wealth? Well, you got a big house, that's always, you know. You have a big car or whatever the equivalent was back then, in a (laughs) kanami. You have big chasana, no question about it. They're crazy uh, chasanas. Okay, why not? You got the money. (laughs) Things like that, you would have a special seat in the shul. You get to boss everybody around in your uh, shul and your kehelo. If you're a rich guy, you're going to have a big macher on the community board because they had the autonomous course of communities. All that is true. But one of the ways that you would express your uh, standing, your wealth, and your piety What's the sponsor? Uh Torah Learning. Well, what kind of Torah learning? I don't know. They don't want to give money usually to like yeshivas. <laughs> but sometimes they would give money for their own private colel. When I say private col, what I mean is, let's say my name is Schwartz. it would be called the Schwartz KOL. Schwartz is the boss. I'll write up the uh the Constitution. Uh what it takes to be admitted. Uh, you know. Uh, members of my family get first to uh, pick, and they would set up these super kolos, which was called a Cloyes. clays was originally like a church building, but in my opinion, the scholars don't agree with me, but in my opinion, probably copied uh, uh, from the uh, Catholic monasteries because I think Jews always looked, I mean, in Rashi's time, at the Catholic monasteries with a combination of plus and minus positive and negative. On the one hand, they thought, what's with the celibacy and mishigash? On the other hand, the idea of a person sitting and devoting themselves to the study and the service of God is, is one that does appeal to a certain facet of the Jewish imagination. Judaism and Jewish culture, Torah culture, like every culture, grows up within the context of competing dynamics, right? We all live our lives within the context of competing dynamics. There's what you like to do on your own, there's what you have to do with a family, what you do with a parent. Member of a show, maybe a person would like to sit and learn all day long, but he's got social responsibilities, you know, all that sort of thing. And little by little, there emerged over the years something that sort of approximated a cloise, a monastery. And that would be what you and I today would call a kolel with a capital K, or cloise is the right word. And these evolved by the 1500s. And then there was always like, 20 or 30 popped up all over Eastern Europe, Eastern and Central Europe. And what happened would be, some rich guy, and very often a rich lady, would, in their will, or maybe when they're alive, set aside the sum of money, a Karen Cayemus, an endowment fund. fund, uh, which would be uh, invested appropriately, and the dividends, you know, the, the profit it makes, would go to support this educational institution, just like they're going to. And this institution, I mean how much money was available? Usually what we do would do we would say like this. You can have ten tops twenty, tops, twenty people learning there for about six or eight years under very demanding conditions, and then they're out. So I the tester, I the, the 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 big giver, the gv, let's say for example let's say for example, thousand dollars a year was uh was it? A, a yeshiva salary or something like that. So he'll give $2,000 a year for 10 people or 5 or 8 people. So that's 80000 a year. No, it's 16000 a year. Okay, decent money. Uh, again, that's more than they make elsewhere. In return, I want value for my money. So what I want is I want somebody to pick out 10 people that I'm with support and learning. Who will be gadolin one day? Or something like that. I don't want some stommy Gusses over here, you know, schmatzing away all day long, learning half the time, shooting the bull half the time, coffee break, all that kind of stuff. They don't want that. It's a bit, it's a capitalism. I want value for money. And so, the idea is like this. I want to locate 10 or 15 names of guys that can learn well. And then they will commit in return for getting a good salary. A good salary. To not seeing their family all week. Because the schedule was going to be Sunday morning to Friday afternoon, 24 hours a day. Hear what I said? Sunday morning until Friday afternoon, 24 hours a day. Uh, You're signing up for this. So it's like a six-year program, maybe a seven-year program. And you're going to finish us and Shulchan and I don't know what. You know, be in. And the reason I say that is because it says these in the terms of the admissions. You know, you had to sign on to commit to this. You know, you're giving me a good salary. I can share the salary with my wife and family. So they'll be well cared for, which is not so common in Eastern Europe. On the other hand, they're not going to see me all week, only on Shabbos. For all day Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Friday morning, I'm literally going to be learning 24-7. And I'm only gonna sleep, please, three hours a day, they often said. Think about that. Three hours a day, maybe four. The rest of the time is learning. There was even some places where they said like this, well, if you if you if you do 24 hours without learning, the next day you get sleep like six hours. You know what I mean? You could do a trick like that. But think about what I'm talking about. Persons now, they're young. These are all for young people. <laughs> a person who's 20 years old is now married, has a family of a little bit or whatever, and uh, consumes himself lucky to be in this kind of environment because it's only for a few. And uh, on the other hand, it's not a sinecure. I mean, you're know, you you're going to be plugging away. And so you better like learning go, you go crazy. So imagine Sunday morning, all day long Sunday till 12 at night. No, 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 not 12 at night, past 12 at night. You're supposed to sleep in the basementers, like a few hours a day, so every so what we consider villainy gone uh, was, was, was common. When I say common, common among these elites. Okay, I read a book the other day. A friend of mine posted about a Forscher in Baltimore, uh, who was a famous uh, person once upon a time. Let's say it's tzaddik, and he slept three hours a day. At least I was said in the book. I believe it too. He's an exceptional person. He'd be nothing but a throwback to the old clergies. You understand? Now, a person who does that—if you're putting in six hours a day—so let me put it this way: you better love gamar, 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 because that's all you do all day long. No, not necessarily. Well, what can there be on there besides gamar, gamar, gamar? Of course, I mean, the key is, of course, but it be in, you know, the halakha. Okay, okay. So that's a whole separate limud. You're talking about, you know, ramam towards and that sort of thing, and uh, be in. And so the people who are going to graduate from this program very often will be very qualified to be rabbis in post won't they? You see what I'm saying? But in nature of the program, I repeat, you're learning almost without a stop from Sunday to Friday. You know, you have three hours at night, you fall asleep. So let's say you sleep, for example, I don't know, from 12 to 3 or from 1 to 4. Something along those lines, right? Obviously, you have to take up a minute to eat. But they, I'm sure they ate in base medrash. You know, somebody brought them sandwiches. I don't mean to be funny. I'm serious. You know, probably brought them some uh, food here for breakfast, lunch, and supper. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there. <laughs> but you don't go to a restaurant. <laughs> you know what I mean? And while away the time, you are eating in the base medrash. You're sleeping in the base medrash. Right? Uh, now, therefore, these cloises became headquarters of heavy learning. And, as they say, run on capitalist system. And what's equally interesting today, from today's perspective, is there's a time limit and then you're out. We live, I did a, a talk last night in my lecture series about Shach, and the emergence of the literature world in Israel in the late 20th century. Because nowadays you have something called the State of Israel, which uh, for political reasons, co- co- what do you call it? coalition politics is willing to support people learning for life. So we have large numbers of people uh, who just sit and learn ever, forever, that's it. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and so forth. And so do their kids, and so do their kids' kids. And um, there's no end, because why should you? Limit Torah is the best thing, and if you, if you can do it, you, you go ahead. That's because you have millions and millions of dollars coming from the Israeli government. We're talking about the 18th century, the 17th century, the 16th century. There's no endless amount of money. It's a very finite amount of money. Now, mind you, $2,000 or whatever it was, by the standards of that time, was good money. It was. The, the cloys was famous for paying r- relatively well. It's like somebody you know told me even in a co somewhere in California paid a hundred k a year. Can you imagine that? Maybe it was a Palo Alto or something like that. $100,000 a year of learning? Whoa. That's <laughs> not what it was when I was young. But anyway, whatever the case is, you had a good Salary, but you had to deliver. Now, from this system emerged a whole galaxy of Gadolin. Not surprising. When I say Gadolin, names you've heard of and names you haven't heard of. Names you've heard of would be people who, uh, you know, were able to secure jobs as members of famous community, of basins of famous communities. I spoke about many of them in my podcasts, uh, 15, 16, 1700s. And the ones you never heard of would be not the Abbasin, but a Dayan on the Basin, very important position, Roche Basin, Magid, uh, which was a very prestigious position once upon a time. Our hero was a Magid. The Moshe Oster. Now, I want to be very clear about this. (laughs) We're talking about somebody who grew up in Brody. He must have been married to the right person. uh, Because in Europe, just like here, Nowadays, she was run very much on nepotism, right? I'm shocked to hear that. Very much on the nepotism. And uh, if you had the right connections, you know, like they see in Israel, if you know the right people, you don't need protexia, you know? So, uh, our hero came Ramosha Ben-Helamizamush. His father was from, uh, from over there. He, As far as I can tell, he spent his whole life in the uh, Klois, which therefore means that, uh, listen closely what I'm about to tell you. Which means he had independently wealthy, somehow or other, either himself or his wife's family. And so, aside from the five, six years that he was given as a member of the, you know, being paid, if you had your own independent funds, you could also continue to learn over there afterwards. Not going to kick you out. And there were a couple of people there in Brody in the 18th century who stayed there as lifers, and they helped. So think about what I'm saying. Somebody's already a talmud chacham. He's a ganzer talmud If you can qualify for that cut, you're big talmud You're already putting your six or eight years of learning 24 hours a day. I said it wrong. 20, <laughs> 21 hours a day, <laughs> right? 21 hours a day. My goodness. And then you do it beyond the six years for 12 years for 20 years for 30 years. You, you know something when it's all over, right? And these cloisters, as I say before, were all over Eastern Europe, but the one in Brody became the most famous, and the most prestigious. And the reason it did is because what I just told you—they had people who somehow or other had the economic wherewithal that they could be lifers. This is very unusual in those days. They could stay and and uh, live in that community. You know what it's like. A person say like this: "Now I'm gonna come to Baltimore. I'm gonna come to Lakewood." I'm learning here and this so and so many years, and then I'll go out in the sticks somewhere and be a rabbi. But after being here, him and his wife, five years, ten years in Baltimore and Lakewood and Muncie, they say, You want to know something? This is where I want to stay. Because I don't want to go out to the sticks and have no Yiddish, garden, no, uh, what's the right word? You know, Miss Garrett, no framework, uh, infrastructure, that's the word. Here, my kids are day school, stop this, stop that, take Pesiako. You see what I'm saying? So that's what happened in there. So our hero is one of those. The Kleiser Brody was founded by a couple of rich families, I believe early in the 1700s. Babad, you know? And uh, they combined wealth and uh, Torah scholarship, uh, usually in a very rough way. A lot of these people who were rich were Takifim, like they have in the Gemara. Matalemi, Yisera, tibur. They certainly, all these guys were like that no question but they also because the style with the whole environment was from those days so the way you expressed your social whatever uh, in a very classy way was by sponsoring a high-level learning institution so our hero uh, was from this group he's not the only one an entire cadre emerged along the lines that I just described they all had it private money. Therefore, the years they put in the kolel, they learned up a storm, and then they did even more. And um, some were able to be lifers and others not. Now, not everybody's the same way. The most famous person of the Chabur I'm talking about would be the node of Landau, who came from a well-to-do family, exactly what I just described, married a rich girl, put in his six or however many years in the uh in the Chloe's and Brody, was one of its leading members. Surprise, surprise. And was a close friend of our hero, Amosha Ostra. And, um, but he wanted a, a career as a rob somewhere. Get it? Notice he didn't want to be a lifer. You know, you know, learning is great, obviously. And he spent all of his life learning, as we know. But he wanted to be somebody, be a rob in the community, start his own yeshiva, you know, that way. Express his creativity in this manner. Right? His child's and she was that's what he did. As opposed to Rav Moshe Voster, who said, I'm fine over here. And uh, it, it, so, it's, so it's almost like a famous uh, Chaburah of guys. Uh, like four or five. The Yehuda, Rav Moshe Voster, uh Chaim Sanzer, who's often confused with the Dibri Chaim, no connection whatsoever. This is the Chaim Sanzer of the 18th century. The famous Hasidic Rebbe you're thinking of was in the 19th century. Uh, Ram Gershon Kintiver, the brother-in-law of uh, the Baal Shemto right the Baal Shemto himself lived near Brody uh, often, if you read the Shev Besh, was often in Brody uh, often had run-ins positive as well as negative with the members of the Brody close. you know what I'm saying some got along with them, some did not uh, the two closest bosom buddies was our hero Ramosha Oster and Chaim Sanzer right who were like we'd say today the menahalim of, of the Kloish. of Chaim butim was a bitter enemy of the bal and much was actually friends with him with the with the best with the Baal Shem Tov. As a matter of fact they say it's famous I believe where is it uh, was it I'll tell you something very little is known of this guy but one of the places and the reason I'm mentioning this today is Years ago, I did work in, in the University of the so I know Moshe Oster from there to some degree. And it's also true that there was a professor who wrote a book long ago, called Bimei Tzmichad uh Professor Picard, which was an interesting book. And Moshe Oster was in there to some degree. Uh, and he, Professor Picard, did exactly a intellectual study of, uh, you say, the 18th century these cloisters and these kind of environments, because he's interested. It was called Did the Balshento create Ayan, or was he coming the Yesh? Mi-yesh. That's a to put in the simplest terms. And uh, it's a very fascinating world, if you're into that. It's highly intellectual history. It's not simple at all, and it has to do with the Sabbatian period, because Shaptei three died in 1680, I think. And uh, Sabatianism went on for another century, at least. And one of the most interesting and not well-understood aspects of Sabatianism was it was highly preoccupied with theological questions, which are not bad questions at all. The only thing is the conclusions they came up with. Rabbinic Judaism usually isn't into this kind of stuff. And the whole Sabatian business kind of brought it to the foreground. Uh, What exactly is God? When you doubt him. Who do you pray to? To Hashem, to Lukim, to this, to that, to the Shekhinah. What exactly is the Shekhinah? You know, the Rambam says this, Ramban last week's Pasha says that. You know, how do you, what do you mean it's like a in the cave side? You know, all these sort of Lashem questions that most of us, you know, we always pass them by because we say, who knows? In the late 1600s, 1700s, um, many serious people, Sebatians as well as anti-Sebateans wrote on this, gave a great deal of thought to this and all kind of nutty ideas arose over there and sometimes some sublime ideas. So what you and I would call the Balshento Shento idea would be the sublime ideas. But a lot of ideas out there that were nutty ideas and uh, uh, the people in the cloise of Brody were famous for dealing with these issues meaning they considered them, they wrote about them, they discussed them but within a Lurianic framework because as I said before among the scholars that spent their lives there or many years were those who were just Gamar Gamar Gomorrah and Shulchanal, Shulchanal, Shulchanal which is pretty impressive that's pretty impressive but many of them, not all also got in Kabul and the cloys of Brody became famous as what I would say is uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a word that I shouldn't use but I'll use it it'll make sense At the center of Misnagdisha Kabbalah. Okay? So, in other words, Nodi being a very good example, Moshe Oster being a very good example. These are people very preoccupied with Kabbalistic matters, especially Kiswi Arizal. They're the ones who actually later on financed the first publication of Arizal stuff, not in Brody, but nearby. Um, Time we're talking about. The kids are everywhere, floating everywhere, their manuscript form. The people I'm talking about, like Gromosha, Oster, and Chaim and the others, are very much into what's become like the from norm, which is like this You want to study Kabbalah? No problem. First finish shots and, t- and Poskim. You get it? My Molly crazy with shots and game. First, you finish shots. And when I say finish shots, I mean finish shots. Not just, you know, once or twice. Know it. Then you can start to study the Zohar and the Kisiri and all that kind of business. Now, by the way, that is not what all the classic Mikaboam say. Like I said the other day, if you look at Dramchal, he has a whole little book on this. I mean, he, he's going to start you on Kabbalah much younger. But I'm talking about these guys with the Frummies. And Siri told me, and they say like this, you want to study Kabbalah? Really? First, show me you know Nigla? Solid? They didn't get an Esther, and they did, and people like Ramos Shoster and the uh, the note and others uh were very heavily engaged in a result stuff uh once again the volhantam emerges out of such an environment he has his way but uh uh in 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 the closing party they're very interested in dealing with these preoccupations. I remember one thing from the Picard's book because it just struck in my mind and that is. A big question in those days was, "This is going to sound nuts." Uh, questions like this. But Malcolm made inside the Okay, so let me become, let me do a sin, and then I'll do teshuva, and then I'll be a Baal and I'll be a higher level than the Baal <laughs> Gomer. Right? Now you know, Sabatianism was very much in the idea of what has been called mitzvah ba'avera, not in the sense you want sin, but you do a mitzvah, or you do an avera. Uh, as a positive act. Now, obviously, the clays of Brutty uh heavily opposed to this. That's the H.R. talking. You don't do some kind of a vera in order to become a Baal Shuba and then, you know, go, reach a higher level. But why not? So our hero wrote a couple of books on this very subject. Uh, and he, uh, one's Arukas Abosam, the other one is Darsh Moshe. These are obscure works. Nobody knows anything about them today. At least, at least as far as I know. Maybe I'm a dummy. But, you know, that's what it seems. And Arugaz Abosim, you know, he says, very famously, You don't get to at one jump. You understand the Torah by Madrigas. Because if you don't know the nigla well, if you're not solidly grounded in Shazza Milo but of no The next show You'll be like an astronomer, you know, a Polish astronomer. You walk, 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 look into stars, and you don't see there's a big hole in the ground in front of you, and you fall down in the hole. Okay? Which means you have to be grounded. Okay? So before you start dealing with questions, like I say before, of sublime Kabbalistic nature. The Olamas, the Spheras, and that sort of thing. First, had going to Baba Kama. That's the approach. Except that there were very few people who can do that. But these people, the ones I'm talking about, are the ones who could do it. And it's very interesting that uh, they didn't have any uh, recorded hostile relations with the Baal Shemto, who died in 1760. As I said, if you read the Shiv Chayabesh, which is the official biography of the Baal Shemto, even though it was written, decades after the Baal Shem Tov died, it was published by Lubavish. But still these are classic stories. You see, Baal Shem Tov had a lot to do with these different members of the Kloys of Brody. Some of them got along better, some of them got along worse. Uh in in and, and and everybody's related to everybody. That's what makes it so interesting. I told you before, Chaim Sanzer was a big opponent of the Baal Shem Tov. but he was a Machutin with the Tol de Yosef. Who was the main student of the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, Rav Ramosha Ostro was a machutin with uh, Abu Ghoshen Kutavar, which means he was sort of related then, if you follow, to the Baal Shem Tov, because the Baal Shem Tov was was married to sister of Abu Ghoshen Kutavar. And, and uh, whereas if Chaim didn't want to have anything to do with the Hasidus, he considered all baloney, uh, they say about, uh, let me find it here, Ramosha Ostro, shall Shalabest. HaKadosh Brody. when the Baal Shanta would visit Brody, which was often the Moshe he'd go right away to this guy's house, and they would sit and talk in who knows what for hours, but because the Baal was from, here we have the early Hasidim, so our hero had a daughter, when the Baal Shanta would come, he chased the daughter out of the house, shouldn't be a girl in the house, God forbid, same time as the holy man is there, uh, right? Until uh, the Baal Shem Tov left. And so what you see over here is that it's possible for a person to be not Hasidic exactly. On the other hand, very interested in shall I see Hasidic issues? I, what I mean by that is the kind of questions the Baal Shem Tov raises, which is what's the quality you're davening, indeed, who are you're davening to, what is the Uh You have to be Hasidic to be interested in what's the definition of Devekas, right? How do you defeat the eight Zaharas? I'm serious now. <clears throat> you know, how do you control your Machshabas? How do you go on these uh, spiritual journeys? All of which, in the context of Baba Kama, but see also. That's why I'm saying these are typologies that don't exist. And what's interesting, everything's interesting, what's interesting is that. Um, The non-Jews knew about this because I remember if you're interested in anything I'm talking about uh, there's a book you can look up I haven't seen it in decades. After the Holocaust the Mosad Haruf Cook back like in the 50s when it was a more mm, mainstream as opposed to right-wing kind of publishing house (laughs) maybe that's not the right way to put it so one of the things they did was they published a series of community studies, communities that have been wiped out by Hitler. It was called Arim V'Imo BeIsrael, Mother Cities in Israel and uh, I used to see when they had the Baltimore Hebrew College, they had the library yesterday, it doesn't exist anymore, anywhere but they had these uh, volumes from the Most Cook they've never been republished as far as I know you know, one was on uh, Hamburg and one was on Prague and you know Vilna, you know, that kind of thing Nothing wrong. It was very good. And what was on Brody? There was a guy, Dr. Nathan Gelber. I don't think he was from. And a big Zionist. And he had a PhD in history from I don't know where, from Vienna, I think. And he did a very fine book on Brody. It's externalist. But that's where you always have to start, with externalist descriptions. And uh, he was obviously fascinated with the city he came from. And he wrote other articles and things uh, in various journals. On these kinds of subjects, and he's got all the stuff on the Brody Clos. And he said from the Austrian documents that in, in Poland it was it was called the Jewish University. Uh, the Austrian government called it the Polish Sorbonne. Sorbonne is the highest university in Paris. So in other words, even the Geisha bureaucrats recognized that in this town of Brody, which was to be fair the largest community, Jewish. In the kingdom of Poland, it had seven thousand people, which is not that much, but by the standards of that time, just to give you an idea, that was considered huge. Uh, and they knew they didn't know what the Jews are learning, but they knew whatever it is this high level. I think it's very interesting, right? And so our hero was able to spend his life doing just this. Uh, however, whereas his buddy, sort of two. Two of them became the Menalim and ran the place. Uh, one was with Chaim Sanzer and the other was with Moshe Oscar. Whereas with Chaim Sanzer was just, you know, uh, devoting himself to the, the Kollel, to the Klois, and nothing but, our hero um, became an official, he became the maggid of Brody. It was very interesting, because a maggid, especially in the 18th century, if you weren't the poor type, and the guy we're talking about cannot be poor. I mean, I I didn't see his bank account, but the the kind of biography I'm describing, the guy could not be poor. A maggid means, first of all, you have to be a good speaker. Second of all, you have to have knowledge of a certain type of literature. And that's the literature of uh, Agatha, and more than that. If it's the 18th century and it's for a Koshua community where everybody's learned or many people in the community are learned it, so a regular God, I it ain't going to be enough. And you have to become masters of the what I would call the sermonic literature out there, which I've discussed from time to time. And we know that he very much uh, was into the Alshach, for example, and um, similar types of works probably to Maral, I assume, in which you're taking uh, ideas and thought systems, uh, Torahic, and you know weaving them in as part of your uh, uh, sophisticated presentation of the material. His Darsh Moshe on Tehillim is basically not a commentary on Tehillim; it's using the Psukim of Tehillim for him to get his points across. Nothing wrong with that, I and mean, that's a certain type of of drasha. I'm simply saying he wasn't a speaker in Stam of the He was a very Cheshwar type of individual. So he had a good life. I mean, he did what he wanted to do. He lived where he wanted to live. Uh, He obviously was able to make it go financially. Uh, It's interesting he didn't publish anything on the Lumsus, whatever. But on the other hand, he uh, was able to use, it's clear to me, the Kabbalistic ideas for Musa purposes. And I think when you're from that type, that's what you view the Kabbalah's utility to be. It's a kind of Musr instrument. You get it? Sort of like what you read with Chaim Vital and the Shire Kedusha. You know, you're taking the Kabbalistic ideas, but you're using them to motivate the people to be more medocatic in their mitzvahs and so forth. As opposed to, you know, spending hours uh, trying to figure out what exactly is the tsimsum. Which other scholars were into. You know. And so the result is. We have the presentation of a kind of Jewish culture of a high degree. High culture. That existed once upon a time. And which uh, represented a uh, community of wealth and uh, sophistication. Entirely expressed within Torah terms. I'm not sure where you see that too often. When I say that I mean. We have plenty from people around today, but most people aren't interested in the sophisticated ideas so much. You know, they're just interested, like, you know, if you present things rhetorically, especially from, you know, sign these kind of intellectual speculations like you would see over there in those days. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's what I'm familiar with anyway. And uh, there's a kind, therefore, of a Jewish aristoc- aristocracy of once upon a time, an aristocracy of the mind. Of the mind. Now, here's the thing. He died in 1780s. Ten years or twelve years before he died, things started to go bad in general, simply because Poland was divided up between its three neighbors. It's what they call the first partition of Poland in 1772. And the whole area of Galicia, western and eastern Galicia, was taken over by Austria. The Austrian army came in there. They were anti from And um, they made a mess of things. Especially in the early years. The Emperor Joseph II made a mess of things. And they ruined the Jews economically. Not they, not they were trying to. They just were a bunch of boobs. And they screwed up the economy. Because you have to understand, before 1772, the kingdom of Poland was like a capitalist paradise. You lived in, let's say, Brody. You paid a certain percentage... To the guy the top, Prince Poniatowski and then you're left alone. You know what I'm saying? Suppose I make half a million a year. Uh, let's say you pay Poniatowski I don't know, let's just say for arguments sake, you pay him 100 grand a year, which is pretty good. The 400 is yours. You gotta do, like, do a number of taxes. 400 is yours. Uh, you know, in that kind of situation, I'm, I'm uh, what's the right word? I'm encouraged to, you know, diversify and try to expand my economic enterprises. When the Austrians came in, they had a hundred taxes and they tried to micromanage everything and they didn't know what they're doing. And they divided the uh, problems up into different districts and screwed things up again. Administratively I don't want to give you all the boring details. Suffice it to say, most of the Jews were economically ruined. And this began a period for the next hundred years, hundred and some years where Galicia went more and more into poverty, and you had terrible starvation among the Jewish population. I repeat, starvation. Not the rich at the top, but the poor at the bottom, which were the majority. And this pretty much, to be perfectly honest, this lasted until the First World War, maybe even until Second World War. Galicia, Eastern Galicia was a bummer from the economic perspective. Now, from the firm perspective, you know, it was a Hasidic period and all that, but from the economic perspective, many children starved, and uh, you know, actually even went after the lives of prostitution, things like that it was a big shame. He, our hero, was from mainly mainly the period before that, when actually the Jewish community in Poland was uh I'll use the word rich, you know, I'm using relative terms, it was quite well off. It's very famous. Nerve Beud himself, the King of Rabbi in Prague, so he moved west from Poland into Central Europe into Bohemia. So you think, the farther west you go, the better the economy. That's how it is today. There's a famous speech, when he came to Prague, he said, wow, I, I'm not used to this kind of poverty. Back where I come from in Poland, people generally make a nice living. You see? Uh, so you find, in situations, where, uh, if you have a micromanaging type of government, if they don't, don't know what they're doing, and they usually don't, they're the ones that cause all the poverty. That's just interesting. Now, I didn't see this in the writings of our hero, but I haven't seen them all. And second of all, it probably would be dangerous for him to mention. uh, But it is interesting that in the 1780s, when this uh, economy goes south, so to speak, you find the uh, production and publication of a lot of of Kabbalistic works. I'm not 100% sure what the connection is. It could be just a coincidence. But leave me, um, that there is some economic connection with the two. Uh, now as I said before he died in 1785 uh, I'm sure this, I don't even think about his kids they lived in that area within it he died at the right time within another 15 years 20 years I don't think there's any more clays why not why not the answer is the rich became unfroom became more westernized when the rich become like that they no longer consider a colo something by which you get social credit and you spend money on. They'd rather give money to an opera house, a hospital, or something like that and get the credit that way. You understand? And there's all of a sudden they're looking for credit in the Geisha world. And uh, that is a broad trend that swept all of Europe. And uh, the divorce, therefore, between the rich on the one hand and the learners, on the other hand, was this big tragedy. And it led to uh, the idea, which didn't exist before, of somebody's just a yeshiva bach or coal guy, just like a loser. You clearly see what I'm describing today. That was not the way it was seen once upon a time. If somebody was in a cloise, he was among the elite, the 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 the, the happy few. Um, you know, things changed. And by the time you get to the 19th century, whatever used to be a cloise became like a synagogue or a Hasidic. Stiebel, a lot of times you see the Hasidim called it a cloist. They're not referring to what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? They're not referring to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something that lasted basically the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, and it didn't. The cloist has made a comeback in our time in a different context, what we call the colo. which has its own forms and uh, uh, its own institutional kind of structure. But the general idea that you find today, which is you have a call of relatively limited number of guys, usually uh, being sponsored by Karen Kayams or something like that, or well, the Roche colel I mean, this this is this is the modern successor to the close of yesteryear. We don't have claims on somebody. Certainly not in Baltimore. You have to learn twenty one hours a day from Sunday morning to Friday afternoon. You know, see, you don't. You do not see your family for five years or for eight years. That you don't see, at least as far as I know. <laughs> Notabi Huda, as I said, there was a buddy of our hero, became of course the rabbi in Prague and gave a famous speech, often quoted of his wife's husband when those when Mrs. Noda Behuda died, levi I think her name was, He uh, gave a famous uh, husband, because he was a very good speaker. And he, uh, you know, mourned his wife and all that kind of thing. And he said, you know, she really put up a lot. Because when I was in Kolob, we never saw each other all week until Shabbos. And she was willing to do it. And he recognized a Shishchail, as it were. I was, in 2019, in Prague with one of my groups. This was kind of cool. I brought that speech with me and I repeated it. I delivered it, if you could say that, in the exact spot in Prague. I forget the Shul's name. Where the know to be who to, uh, gave it. But some people all love this. And our heroes spend their whole life like that. Right? Now, I'm sure, once he was out, and was just running the place, maybe he didn't have to be 21-7, or 21-5, you know, 21 hours a day, five days a week. But still, that is some life. Uh, I've been told, in Israel, uh, that there are some places like that. I have a nephew who's like a shtickle, rachsheba, and or Ramad Beishemesh, he said they had a couple of guys he knows that, like they, let's say, for example, they live in Shalim, but in order for money to support the family, they'll come and spend days and days, I don't know, maybe Ramad Beishemesh, wherever Nicola is, and like in the old days, come back for weekends. So maybe there's some of this is still left. But uh, I just uh, therefore wanted to share a, a biography of someone less well-known, but doesn't mean it was less important. That means it was less important. Anyway, with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.